Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of our Cultivating Rural Education, a people-focused approach book series. And today we're going to be talking with one of the authors, with my co-host, Julie Duffield. Julie is from the Westhead Regional Comprehensive Center. Julie, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, listeners. I'm very happy to be here. I know Melissa from our work in the rural community of practice, and we're very excited to be bringing this podcast series to you. And I also want to make sure that uh, we get a chance to have our author, who's going to be talking with us today, introduce herself. Jenny Selig is uh, the author of chapter one in this book, and it's entitled A Clear View of Rural Education. And I'm excited about this topic because it really does set the stage for people that don't live in rural places to have an understanding about the importance of rurality and how rural education is really something that we want to pay attention to and focus on uh, at the national level and conversations around what works for, for students that we're servicing. So Jenny, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, um, thank you so much, Melissa and Julie, for having me. And I am currently a research scientist at the, with the Education and Child Development Department at NORC, um, which is affiliated with the University of Chicago. However, even though I live in an urban area, my path has not been linear, and it's been really influenced by rural schools and communities um, the whole way through. I, you know, student taught in a rural community in Appalachian, Ohio, um, and then I ended up teaching both in an urban environment in Baltimore, Maryland for a few years, but then also for a significant amount of time in, um, in Appalachia, I came back and taught in that area. I uh, went and pursued my PhD in education policy studies, um, and when I did that, I was really moved by the fact that a lot of my coursework was around urban education. And so that really drove me into thinking, okay, I know rural education is so important. And I was part of this rural community and part of these um, relationships with the community, but nobody was really talking about them um, in my PhD program. So I moved into that um, field entirely, really asking what is rural, what is rurality, and why should we be paying attention to it as something um, unique and specific within the field of education? Uh, and so much of my research explores what schools do for their rural communities um, and how to leverage that relationship and support of rural sustainability. Thanks, Jenny. I'm going to jump in first because I know in the first chapter called Clear View of Rural Education, you had to give an overview of um, what was coming forth. And so can you share a little with listeners a little bit more about rurality of communities and why, you know, focusing this and using an asset-based approach is sort of key to understanding the areas, rural areas, including relationships among stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the definition of rural um, is complex, um, it's dynamic, and it's heterogeneous. So rurality is not just one monolithic definition. Um, and so rural is both, I think, more commonly understood as a geographic concept. Um, it's about um, space. It's about space between places. Um, it's measurable, and it's also a landscape, and, but it's also a lived experience, and I think this is what um, I really dig into in the chapter. 
It's what's felt in a rural place. It's the smell of fresh cut hay, the walk to school. It's the long bus ride that begins before dawn, cheering at the 4th of July parade with the whole town on Main Street. And each experience is different, but formed by interlocking relationships. And so that's kind of the, the focus of the chapter is really elevating these interlocking relationships um, at both an individual level, so around neighbors, teachers, teammates, and an organizational level, you know, the school district, uh, the local chamber of commerce, the tavern league, <laughs> um, and, you know, and then also the system level. So economics, politics, um, and social and cultural values. So I, I, I take a look at how um, rurality as a geographic concept is something that is really developed and built into policy, um, but that there's a lot of conflict around whether those measurable, quantifiable statistics are really allowing for the diversity of rural experience to kind of come through and to be paid attention to from a policy level. And then the asset-based approach I think is really key. So this means that um, a clear and specific view of the strengths of rural people and places, but it actually doesn't mean ignoring the challenges. And I think that's often what folks think when you'd have an asset-based or a strengths-based approach. What it does instead is it flips the narrative um, to move away from a definition of omission. So what rural communities lack um, and build instead on what they have in order to address the challenges that do exist. Uh, and so ultimately the strength of relationships or kinship ties, um, you know, church events, uh, high school football games, farming co-ops, like all of these different examples that exist within a variety of rural communities are locally organized and are strengths to um, supporting uh, local education um, success and community sustainability. So what I'm hearing that is in rule, there's, it's a very complex system and there's many ways that you can tap into different assets in the community to address the challenges that come up. And that role often falls on to the superintendent. So in your book, I really liked when you were talking about rural leaders and the complex roles they often have, not just in building these partnerships and building on those strengths. Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's first and foremost, as we're talking about the sort of differences in all of these rural communities and how to really understand what the community is that you live within and what you work within, the superintendents, um, you know, can very much seem to be their, their cultural bridge agents is one way to think about them. They're community spanners, I believe, that um, uh, one of my other uh, authors of, of the book, Erin um, McHenry Sorber, really talks about in her work. Um, and But at the same time, I think what's really important here is to recognize the superintendent doesn't have to go it alone. Um, and I think one of the important things to remember is that walking into any particular community, any particular rural community, is that there are already good work that's happening there already. And, and they need to find that. Who is doing that work? What are the organizations on the ground? Is it the... Um, you know, is it the Elks Lodge? Is it the, is there a subset of the city council that's working with youth? Is there um, an industry leader who is um, working with the schools already around um, supplying some apprenticeships perhaps? And so there's actually almost always, I believe, something already happening on the ground. And I think outsiders and potentially superintendents who might be coming in from outside to work within a community, um, not believing that there's nothing happening and being able to actually do some sort of asset mapping and thinking locally around what is there, doing listening sessions with the community. And honestly, the school board is an excellent way into that because the school board is comprised of local individuals from the community and can provide a lot of insight on who the key leaders and stakeholders are who are already doing this work. 
And so the superintendent um, has a lot on their plate already. Um, but being the face of the, of the local school uh, and the local school district and being able to um, engage in these relationships and deepen these relationships is an, a, you know, uh, an important use of their time. Um, but also, again, recognizing that some of that work, that groundwork is already there, I think is a way for them to maybe speed up the process and not need to just, you know, start from scratch. And you call that the community capital framework by Flora and Flora. Is that what you're referencing? Yeah, you know, I think that um, I am referencing that uh, to some extent, but I actually think if the, the superintendent is part of that framework, the superintendent is um, part of the uh, social fabric of the community, is part of the um, political capital in the community, um, and is working with the community already to generate human capital in the terms of, um, you know, youth development um, and ability to contribute to society. So the typology that I talk about in the book that's related to the community capitalist framework um, and uh, the rural social space model um, that I, I bring in from, I think, Reed and, and company, that is actually more, I think, from a state level perspective um, or from a community level perspective, but really thinking about how do we understand the different factors that are going to be um, playing into the resource availability in the community, um, playing into, and when I say resource, I mean both financial resources, um, sort of the traditional sense, but also um, human resources, right? Who, who are, again, going back to like local leaders and organizations, um, but also thinking about what are the historical relationships between the school and the community? Um, we know that in rural areas, um, memories are long uh, and often, you know, um, ingrained in practices. Um, I would just say that um, when I was doing, I did a year long study in uh, a small town in northern Wisconsin where I moved there for a year. Um, and so I was very much ingrained in the place, but I hadn't been there before, um, before moving up for the study. And it took me a long time to realize that when they talked about the armory, it was the city hall. Or when they talked about the, the grocery store that was like four, four grocery stores removed from the current one, <laughs> or they would talk about the old high school, which is now the assisted living facility, you know? And so there's like this levels of history, you know, that, and, and the ways that buildings and places and people are like reclaimed and repurposed and moved forward. Um, that I think, you know, on that level, it's really important to understand. And that gives a story of the community and also some information around maybe some of the challenges around, for example, school consolidation or um, some uh, levies or referenda that might not have been passed um, to support new building projects for the school. Because I think coming in from the outside, you can take a look at those particular incidences and say, what, why aren't these folks, you know, supporting their local schools or um, you know, consolidation seems to be the most efficient practice. Like, why is this not playing out the way that we imagined it would? Um, why is there, you know, potentially protest or reticence to, to engage in these places and ways? Um, and being able to take a step back and look at the longer history of how the community and the school have been engaged um, over time is extremely important. Hearing this as a superintendent in a rural community, what resonates from you from what Jenny just said? You know, I was a rural student, so I do understand rurality, and I was a rural teacher and a principal, but when I moved into my community where I'm currently a superintendent, it was a new rural place that I needed to learn how to navigate. Um, what was interesting is, as you're talking, Jenny, about those people that have long memories, my, uh, my governing board at the time that I was hired, uh, two of the women were on that board, had been there for 30 
plus years as board members, went to the school as students. Their husbands went to school as students and their siblings did as well. Their children and grandchildren went through the system. And so I was able to tap into their expertise around the community and who do I need to talk to about what particular topic. So that whole understanding of the community and how it is so interconnected. And as an outsider, if I were to come in and start making changes without having the background understanding of how that might play out within the community, uh, I would have been setting myself up for failure. So very important to know where your assets are when you're coming into a new place and trying to navigate that. Um, It's a power structure and a community structure that you really need to get to know. Thank you, Melissa. I'm doing feel like I'm getting double duty here, both of you (laughs) sharing. So I think I'm building on this idea of the sense importance of place. Jenny, you talk about several successful and um, exemplary practices, including place-based conscious education. Can you share a little bit more about this approach and what you know, common elements are adaptable in that model for rule setting and some examples out there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so place-conscious education or place-based education, both terms are, are often used, is really focusing on how school is a place, but again, it's an experience that exists um, nested within another place, right, With nested within a community, um, which, as we've been saying, is made up of relationships past to present to future, um, between people and animals and landscapes, um, and then the sort of relationships between industry and development and um, the purposes of education with any given community. And so then to decontextualize learning, which is, um, you know, sort of that's, that's the modus operandi for, um, for education policy. And when we're t- talking about a national level um, of, of a policy creation, or even at the state level, you know, standardization or uh, you know, common common ways of thinking around curriculum requirements and assessments, you know, all of those things are scaffolded up because we need a comparative model to help understand where challenges might lie. We need um, certain standards to help folks, um, you know, move through life and be successful and contribute to the country, um, as well as to have fulfilling lives. So it's not to say that that doesn't have its place, but to decontextualize education and to have it not under be, be understood as a place-based learning experience, this sort of detracts from the connection that students can make with their learning, um, as well as sort of separates what they're learning within school to the extent that they might feel that they have to leave the community um, in order to pursue whatever their future is, whether that's college or career or, you know, a variety of other reasons to leave, um, instead of recognizing that there is value in their local places. Um, And that doesn't mean that then they would have to stay, but really, again, engaging within local knowledge, engaging with local history, meanings, possibilities, and people um, is really at the heart of what place-based education is. And so I believe any any rural leader or any leader that's listening right now can really be thinking again about their environment and what what are the areas of wisdom within that community. So a couple of examples, Um, I'm actually working uh, on a project right now that's evaluating this program called um, EPIC. And I think, oh, what does it stand for? It's called EYPC. Um, but it's, it's basically a youth civics program. Um, and it's a one semester program that teachers teach in their rural high schools. And it's basically looking at how to engage these students in um, learning about their local government. Um, how does 
governments and, and, and civic society sort of work together within a very small area in order to make change. And so I think, you know, whatever kind of environment you're in, even a big city on down, um, you know, understanding how policy works at, at a local level, I think can be very tricky. And realizing that, you know, your neighbors are who actually help keep the water in the wells, or that actually is in charge of making sure that there is Wi-Fi in the library, um, you know, among other really, really important decisions. Um, and then this, so this program works with the civic teacher through the schools to work with students to get an understanding of who these players are and how local policy operates, and then connects it to um, a health issue in the community. And so then the students will work together to pick a, a topic, potentially, for example, a tobacco-free park. Um, and they, you know, pull together ideas about what they think should happen instead and what the challenges are for the community. And then they take that to their local governing bodies and present it. Um, and there have been uh, a lot of successes with this class um, where the students have, you know, suggested an ordinance and something ends up being passed um, to help the benefit uh, the, the community as a whole. And so these students then are experiencing, you know, these positives in the community. They're experiencing the feeling of change and being able to be a change agent. Um, and so wherever their paths may go after this, the understanding that um, their real community is valuable, that there are options for them to um, be engaged and that they can come back if they leave um, and continue to contribute, I think is really important. So that's one, uh, one example of being sort of place-based. And another, you know, if you wanted to think more environmentally, I think there are um, some really great examples. Uh, I'm thinking of one in Northern Wisconsin that has to do with the sugar bush. Uh, and so maple syrup tapping and um, connecting with uh, a lot of indigenous roots in that area. Um, and also, you know, so bringing in that cultural wisdom, and that cultural value, mm -hmm. but then also, you know, looking out your window and seeing all these maple trees and, you know, it's spring and being able to uh, work with science teachers as well as, you know, cultural heritage uh, workers within the community to come together and um, teach students this very long tradition and history of um, tapping maple syrup uh, and, you know, making it into maple syrup and then, of course, eating it over ice cream. So that really hits on using relationships and multi-purposes and really contextualizing the learning for real reasons. Wow, thank you. Jenny, what are some of the considerations of understanding on how to measure the successes that those different programs are happening in the context of virality? You mentioned in the book that removing place from evidence collection and evaluation is a problem. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so, you know, as I was mentioning earlier around um, sort of place-based education versus sort of this education for everywhere might be one way to think about it. Um, you know, that there are difficulties in implementation and fidelity um, of sort of mass-produced research and product development, like curriculum training, assessments, things like that, um, in rural schools and communities. There are issues of scale, um, support training, um, the kinds of things that teachers and principals might need to incorporate particular types of learning into their environments, um, and relevancy issues. So again, moving away from place-based and saying, well, how is this relevant to my day-to-day -day existence and what students need to know to survive and thrive in their local communities? Right. So if that's a, the challenge, then thinking about measurement of these more localized practices, I think an important piece is you know, really working with folks in your community to ask what does success look like locally? So if we're going to measure success, then we have to define what success is. And in the book, I do talk a little bit about, um, you know, purposes of education and how the purpose of education, you know, we all have a broad purpose, like, you know, so that students can go forth and be successful people in the world. 
Um, but there are other more local concerns that I think can be brought to the foreground. And then figuring out how to assess and measure those um, can be sort of, a, again, a collaborative sort of relational work. Um, so, for example, you know, you might think of strengthening the student connections to local industry. Um, so if that is a goal of their purpose of local education, um, then thinking about uh, youth apprenticeships or thinking about um, bringing business leaders into the school to do presentations, um, you know, for the entire community around the different possibilities of what's, you know, available locally. There are engineers in every community. There are doctors in every community. There are opportunities for students to come back and pursue a wide variety of jobs um, that they might not know actually exist locally. Getting age-appropriate books to each family um, with supports and how to read to children. That might be a goal of the local um, educational system. And so thinking about how to go through that process and, and measuring, you know, literacy um, gains you know, through those particular methods might be another sort of an innovative way to think about um, the purpose of schooling locally and how to sort of raise the educational level of, of the entire community. You know, I think also there's uh, deepening student relationships, again, with the history of their communities through intergenerational events, um, projects, or having youth interview their, you know, grandparents and great-grandparents um, and really digging into the local history. Uh, again, so these are, I'm giving examples here of what a history teacher might want to do, what a what a literacy teacher, an elementary teacher could do as ways of saying that measuring success doesn't have to be this sort of quantifiable, large scale sort of measurement, but instead it can be really deeply tied. And of course, this isn't ignoring academic achievement and like state standards and things like that. Those would all be incorporated, but it's sort of, again, flipping the script and saying, what is locally valuable and what do we want for our children? And since we have local control within the federated system of education in the United States, you know, this, there's an opening here for this to actually be a possibility, but it won't just be a possibility that happens. It needs to be cultivated. And again, that's for the superintendent, the principals, teachers, everybody can really play a role in, in moving that forward. And that goes back to that asset mapping that you were talking about, knowing what is there and then how to frame what success is looking like for that particular place. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I do want to speak a little bit about, um, you know, how this can, might also relate to recruitment and retention of teachers. And, and I'll just say that, you know, we know that recruitment, like teacher shortages in rural areas um, are, are a significant challenge for um, local leaders. Yes. And I want to connect this to thinking about success, thinking about measurement, but also thinking about how the, those challenges of recruiting and retaining teachers are actually very, very similar to the challenges of recruiting and retaining businesses, um, families, um, you know, and, and so instead of this being a, a separate challenge, the school is tackling by themselves. Um, this is actually something, again, where that relational development with the community can really come together and think about how do we tackle this together. And so what this does is it also brings to the foreground, I think, these roles that schools play um, that are often sort of pushed into the background. So one would be the school um, is an employer. They're usually one of the largest employers in, the, in, in small rural communities, but they, you know, attracting, retaining staff can be something that is seen, uh, well, we know, I guess, anecdotally, that um, young, often female teachers coming to rural schools um, who may not be already married um, might find some difficulties finding um, future partners in small rural areas, or they feel that they might not, right? That's one of the sort of anecdotal pieces that we know is difficult for hiring um, in rural spaces. 
And so here's just a fun way of solving this problem, I guess, to some extent that I had heard about. And this is where the Chamber of Commerce actually partnered with the school um, to host professional mixers. Um, so they brought young professional adults and new younger teachers who were in the area um, to get to know each other. Because again, it's about, you know, maybe you live in a small town, but it doesn't mean you actually don't know everybody. <laughs> you know, the rumor is that everybody knows everybody, but at what level do you really know them, right? And so this opportunity to bring, um, you know, these professionals together from two different areas is something that the school as a, a large employer can do. And then there's, of course, the ripple effects. Maybe they get married, maybe they have children, maybe they have become leaders in their own right in the community, et cetera. So it's, a, again, an intergenerational investment um, but something that doesn't cost any money, you know, and then the, another role the school plays is as a community institution. Um, so social and cultural events, we all know, you know, Friday football games and, you know, the local plays and everything that occur at schools are really big attractors for folks in the community. You know, making space also in your school, uh, which is cheap or free for community use. Um, so that different organizations are coming into the school, using the school auditorium and the gym and really being um, ingrained in, in sort of the ins and outs of what's going on in the school is also another really low cost way for schools to be working with their community to really increase the amenities and the kinds of events and things that they have on offer. And again, pointing back to recruiting and retaining teachers and young people and families, um, oftentimes the critique is that there aren't things to do, right? And so the school can play a huge role in that because they're already providing lots of things to do, um, but they can also increase their presence and their availability within the community by opening their doors, you know, to have folks use the track in the morning or to, um, you know, for the local Elks Club to, you know, have an after-school events or et cetera, et cetera. And then on the last piece is that the school is also a service provider. And I do mention this a little bit in the book, um, but in a lot of rural areas, the schools are offer also, you know, providing food, um, you know, beyond school lunch and breakfast there, especially, you know, in the era of COVID. But we also know that schools are um, potentially places where they can offer um, uh, dental checkups or mental uh, wellness um, care or health care. You know, I was just talking to somebody recently about what if we had public laundry available in school buildings? right? Because everybody needs clean laundry. And think about the amount of time that you would have to do your laundry would give you the same amount of time to interact with teachers, to interact with students, to be have a presence within the school, and to get something that you need taken care of, taken care of. Um, you know, and again, I think that the school has the facility, it has the potential to, again, do some really low cost work around connecting with the community, and then elevating that as a way to attract teachers, as a way to attract new folks and businesses into a community. One of the first interviews I ever had was with Brian Strom, and he's an, a superintendent in Texas. And he said, the things that they don't teach you in leadership school, and one of them was how to be a matchmaker, because that's exactly the recruiting tool that he used to try to attract and retain the teachers in his rural community. So, so Melissa, I'm just going to ask you, from what Jenny shared, what resonated for you and a story about using some of those strategies for recruitment or building up that sort of retaining teachers once you have them? Well, I, I think it probably goes to what can we do with what we have to make sure that we are providing an appealing workplace and mm -hmm. what strengths are we tapping into with the community to make sure that once we have them, we keep them. Um, we have done everything from welcome wagons to assistance with rent to providing transportation if, uh, if a teacher didn't have 
or a staff member didn't have a vehicle to uh, making sure that if there were any issues with not being able to socialize, that we created social events to make sure that they felt like they were a part of our community at the school. Um, and I think the other thing that she talked about that's really important to emphasize is the more services that you can provide to your rural community, the more connected they're going to be with what you're doing as a school. And not just uh, academically, but uh, creating that sense of community. Jenny, I love what you said about the um, washing machines. There are grants so that you can get laundry rooms set up in your school. And yes, those parents then can come in and have a service provided to them. While at the same time, maybe there is a parent room and they're learning English. If they're a, a non-English speaker or they're getting uh, trained in how to read to their children at home or they're being given nutrition uh, guidelines for setting up healthy meals at home. So the more that you can be a service organization and provide those wraparound services that are not available in a lot of our rural communities, the uh, more connected to the community you'll be. And just uh, yeah, building off that, um, a model that is, I see surfacing that has been around is the use of community schooling in general, whether it's rural or urban. So a lot of these culture and the importance of that social emotional sort of building around that, it just sort of emphasizes that. So very much so. And then just this is a good segue into, well, what can states do? Because at the end of your mm. chapter, we always end because, you know, we have rural communities and then we have states servicing in educational departments, supporting them. So Jenny, based on your chapter, what are some things that you would emphasize how states can help? Um, yeah, I, so I think that there are a lot of ways that states can can um, engage in supporting rural schools and communities. Um, but I will say one one point coming off of this last conversation um, that I find really interesting that has come up in my research, having marketing strategies, basically. <laughs> um, you know, and I don't necessarily mean that you know school districts are having ads on Facebook um, when they have open positions, but um, a lot of the school community talking, you know, relationships that we're talking about here. Um, are things that internal to communities they know about, maybe only parts of them know about it, but that there are possibilities, you know, within the school and within the local community. Um, and being able to reframe the ways that um, other people outside of your rural community understand your rural school and community is really important. And I actually think states can do a lot of work um, around supporting how um, small rural districts, they don't have the manpower often you know, to really spend a lot of time like thinking about how do we reframe how people think about our community. But that's, I think, being, again, asset forward, strength based, um, and really being able to show what shines about every single local rural community is a way to um, really attract and retain um, teachers, principals, families, etc. So kind of moving from that, uh, we had also talked about community asset mapping. And I think at the state level, this is a, a really uh, important task. Um, and I think that you know, you can do this at a regional level, perhaps at the state, um, because we know that rurality is different um, and that states are so diverse in, um, you know, their different um, cultures and their different um, landscapes and different industries. And so perhaps having a state level view might be helpful to some instances, but having maybe a more regional view um, would be really helpful. And, you know, to create these asset maps, there are a variety of strategies, and they do talk about these in the chapter, but they can look at trends in population, industry, um, tax levies, you know, poverty statistics, but also immigration, where are um, populations increasing, where are they changing, um, to help identify key areas to invest resources. 
you know, who are the agencies, again, organizations, the businesses, the institutions um, in each area, both local to the area, but also translocal. Um, for example, Catholic food pantries, different um, thought leaders that, again, as we talked about earlier, um, that would be important to recognize within these spaces. And then thinking about, again, policies, the historical policies, the funding formulas, um, and how those uh, state-level funding formulas are playing out in these um, small rural areas. And all of this is sort of leading towards getting to know your rural places and people. At the end of the day, listening goes a very, very, very long way. Because if we go back to what is at the heart of all of this, it's relations, it's rapport development, um, and it's being authentic. I don't know what it is about um, being rural that, you know, you have a little, you have a sense when it's not authentic. Um, and that's just no way to enter into a community and really work together um, to, to improve education um, and the community um, sustainability. And then I think, so I have one example on this that might be helpful um, for everybody. Uh, and so, you know, thinking about what a regional task force could look like or what a, um, you know, what this asset mapping might look like and how it might be connected locally. So um, when I was doing some work in Wisconsin, uh, there was a countywide initiative that was started because the um, local extension office had done a study on um, the young people in the area about, you know, were they interested in staying or leaving and why. Um, and what came out of that was a real disconnect they felt between um, the jobs available and what the young people thought they could do in the area. And so this sort of started a, an organization um, that came together that brought business leaders and young adults and said, what is the disconnect and how can we solve that? And what came out of that is that this started to like snowball and it really, they brought in the local schools, they brought in the local technical college, they brought in you know, all sorts of people from every walk of life and said, we don't know what events happen in this town. We don't know where um, you know, all of these small um, opportunities for our children to interact with others. We don't, um, you know, like, so there's programming that is happening and there are informal events that are happening and the messaging is lost on young people um, and so how do we, you know, how do they come together uh, and really, you know, vocalize that and make that clear? Um, and then this gets back to the idea of a marketing strategy, right? So there are just, again, all of these really wonderful, positive things that are happening in these areas. And so how can the states really think about identifying those things and then elevating them and helping reframe um, the ways that we think about rurality within our own states? Um, so you say the state at the state level, they can work with regional entities and help them convene multiple stakeholders in sort of mapping out different scenarios, like you said, you know, youth development in this case, and, um, and supporting different initiatives that give us real sort of snapshot of what the context is like. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's really about um, understanding, again, getting back to the definition of rurality as more than just a geographic definition but a, a lived experience. And so how can the state um, level folks really dig into what it means to be living in, in, a, in a rural place within their state um, and how to sort of shine a light on that and reframe it in ways that are strengths-based, asset-based, and really attend to the needs of the educational community um, within these rural spaces. Well, Jenny, looking forward, what's next for you? Now that you've completed the chapter in the book, where is your research taking you? 
Well, I mentioned that um, the, the epic, you know, civics curriculum that I'm excited about um, seeing how um, rural teachers will take that up in a variety of different states and um, how that will um, play out within their communities and the kinds of results that will that will yield. Um, but also I have a, an upcoming article um, in the Journal of Research and Rural Education um, in which uh, my colleague Katie McCabe and I um, uh, did a study on why teachers stay in rural schools, because oftentimes, you know, we know why teachers leave. And so you, I think another theme that you're hearing me talk about in this chapter is, again, reframing, reshaping that narrative. And instead of saying why people leave rural communities and why they leave rural schools, what does it mean to stay? And why do people do that? Um, and so within our work, you know, we're, um, we, we recognize and what we're hearing from teachers is it's the community. That's what keeps them there. Um, and so, you know, of course, everybody wants a little bit more money and a little bit, you know, a little bit more stability. But at the end of the day, that's not what rises to the foreground um, of what they're saying. And so what they really are talking about is having those relationships developed with the community, having a way to understand who is there and who the players are, having the principals and superintendents help ease that pathway um, and connecting what they're doing in the classroom to what's happening in the community. And so I think that you know, that draws a lot on the themes that we have here. Jenny, thank you for, um, you know, sharing about what your chapter is focused on and how it sets up the, um, the following chapters. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we finish? And thank you for participating in this podcast with us. Um, you know, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm so appreciative of this opportunity. I think that, um, you know, really good work happens in classrooms and schools all across the country. And I think elevating it up to the state level and thinking about these sort of macro systems um, is really um, essential so that the work that happens in the schools and classrooms can be also successful, um, locally successful as well as, you know, nationally successful. Well, thank you for giving us a clear view of rural education. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. You can check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Sadorf, so you never miss a new release. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.